Hey, welcome to the Color Couch, which is brought to you through Lau Post and presented by me, Vincent Taylor. And if you don't know who Lau Post is, you got to check them out. They're an awesome creative learning platform. Uh, I've used them on and off over the years, actually, just to touch base on everything from you know uh, HDR to Aces, the, the whole thing. Okay, welcome back to the Color Couch, the work from home edition. Um, I hope everyone is staying safe and healthy and, and looking after each other. Uh, this is episode four. If you've listened previously, you will have heard that um, I've had some great people sitting on the couch of mine, uh, quite a variety of backgrounds. Uh, it, and all of that said, it seems crazy, given that I'm a colorist and this thing is called the Color Couch, that I've not spoken yet with a director of photography. That is about to change. Uh, my next guest is an incredible award-winning cinematographer um, or DP, depending on which part of the world you're in, um, director of photography, who's got a long history in the industry, working on long form, on short form projects, documentaries, and she's probably about to blush, but has such an incredible eye uh, for lighting composition, um, and I'm a massive fan. I'd like to introduce you to Katie Milwright. Hi, welcome to The Colour Couch. Hello, Vincent. Nice to speak with you. <laughs> you know what? I, I was thinking about how to introduce you and, and what to say and then I, and I went oh I guess I better be good and do a little bit of homework so I, so I did a little Google stalk and it's it's hard to introduce you because you, honestly when you look at your career there's a lot there's a lot there to condense down so so I'm, I'm gonna nonetheless I'm gonna read uh, a couple little bits that I wrote down now she is the 10th female cinematographer to be credited with uh, the Australian Cinematographer Society. Is that right? Well, I think technically I might have been the ninth, but I think I think that was within five minutes. So, <laughs> oh, Right, right. That in itself is something on a couple of different levels. But yeah, that's fantastic. It's 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 like glossing over everything. But it's like, um, so your recent film credits include uh, the film Celeste by the beautiful director Ben Hackworth, who I miss so much. Uh, and you're one of the four DPs who, lensed uh, Gurumul with our, our lovely friend Paul Williams it was hard to know where to start I'm going to go back to where where I first met you or, or the, the place that we kind of touched base which was the Victorian College of the Arts which is the film and television school in Melbourne Victoria I guess uh, how did you end up there? I ended up going to the VCA straight out of high school, which was kind of strange at the time. I think there was only one other one other girl straight out of school, which was our good friend Gula Sandler. Oh, really? So I was 17 when I started there and everybody was probably at least six, seven years older than us. And um, I was, I mean, it was such a great three years of university and it's such a great eye-opening experience just to the world as well as um, the world of filmmaking, which I didn't have too much um, familiarity with. I'd certainly made a lot of short films before I'd gone to university. Um, but uh, maybe before that time and during that time, I started to um, get most excited about shooting and being behind the camera. And I started to shoot other students' uh, short films. And yeah. wow, that was the most fun job I could find on a set when, I mean, you know, we'd, we'd try them all out. We'd be a sound recordist. We'd be um, a director. We'd be uh, first AD. And, and every time I got to do camera work or do um, cinematography, I was absolutely thrilled. Like that was, that was where I should be. For those who don't know, the, the, the VCA, which has a, a wonderful reputation in, in Melbourne, one of the things about that course, which is, I think, brilliant, is that you do every role 
on a, on a film set. Like you do get to experience that and, and, and go through that. And, and I, I think that's, I still think that's a really, really good thing. Yeah, I do too. You sort of have an appreciation for, yeah, the finer points of everybody's role. I, I never made a very good sound recorder, so I must say. <laughs> so you went to the VCA, the film school, with an eye to be a filmmaker or director or? Look, I, I think, think I went in thinking... I was most interested in directing, but to, to be honest, I was quite young and, and probably quite naive about a lot of things. And <laughs> I, I didn't really know what I knew I wanted to be a filmmaker, but I didn't know really what that meant or which side of things I should push or which way I, uh, yeah, which way I saw anything. So, but, but you said that um, even, even before you got into the film school, you'd made a couple of little things or yeah I'd made quite a few shorts I had a friend who was like a edit assistant at a facility in town and he helped me and a friend of mine make a bunch of short films like so he would um, edit them for us and I mean that seemed so great we would go into this facility at night when it wasn't um when it was all shut down and and get to sort of edit these films and it sort of seemed like a sense of professional and <laughs> amazing. Oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I think that just sort of really uh, opened my eyes to what a career in that world might be like and, um, yeah, sort of pushed for the film school. I mean, it seemed like such a great place to go to and everybody said to me, you are not going to get into that film school. Yeah. And I made this quite cool little short film <laughs> that we shot um, illegally on a train that night and um, it turned out pretty well <laughs> and I think that's what got me over the line. Right. Yeah, we were making films like every other weekend so it was I sort of felt like I had a, a bit of a back catalogue going by the time I sort of got into school and we, and we didn't do media at my high school or anything like that. There was no media course. I was just doing it because I really liked it. There was, there's obviously something there in your, you know, pre 17 years that there was something about mo the motion pictures or, or, or films that you, that got you interested and excited, right? Um, I think, I mean, there was a few things. I think I loved watching making ofs <laughs> and um, I loved all that sort of the, the mechanics behind the creating of, of a story. And I think finally, um, finally seeing Jane Campion's piano, something really touched me with that film and it really made me want to tell stories in a visual way and in a, in a filmic way. Something really changed after seeing that film for some reason. Yeah. Oh, uh, I, I can think of quite a few reasons. I mean, that, that film affected me so much as well. The opening shot, it's like quite extraordinary as well. Like it's sort of like an out of focus hands in front of the lens. And I think just that sort of idea of being able to create evoke a feeling and a, and a memory maybe just by using this one shot. I just thought about that shot for such a long time. Yeah. It's interesting. So which, uh, uh, that shot, what was that shot? It's like, a, it's like out of focus hands across a lens. So you're seeing this sort of blurry, sort of blurry Holly Hunter's hands, like she's looking up into the into the sky and her hands are out of focus. And I mean, I always I always love an opening shot of a film, but um, it really sort of decides for me sort of how in and out I am. <laughs> but that one particularly. Isn't that incredible how, you know, an image, a composition, a colour uh, or something like that will just it hits you at the time or 
sometimes it'll hit you later, but then it just stays with you. Yeah, there's real power and sort of strength in that as well, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah. At the VCA, you, you, somewhere through there, you, you definitely got the bug for cinematography. Yeah. Do you know, was there a time there where you went, yeah, actually, that's what I want to do. That's, that's, <laughs> was there a click then? Um, I think in third year, I shot two people's short films, um, Kate Schmidt and Kathy Mayer's short uh, graduate films and um, Kate's one I used a lot of colour and it seemed to be sort of like more sort of embedded in a story world so it really kind of got to be a departure from anything naturalistic and I really loved that experience and then they give out a bunch of awards at the end of the year and I ended up getting the cinematography award which was really great but I think that really kind of gave me a, a good push in the back just like oh actually I liked doing that and I'm actually pretty good at it and I think that little push or that big push um I was um a good awakening i think of what might be what might be possible yeah i'm guessing but it's a pretty good guess this is all film right you were shooting film then this is all film yeah so 16 mil pretty much exclusively 16 mil so we were super 16 Mm. yeah it was all all negative film that is going to be another whole part of our conversation because i want to come back to that um all right so you've, you've got the bug for being a DP or being a cinematographer, where do you go from film school? How do you then proceed with uh, that? Yeah. So I, again, I was really young when I left. I was like 20, 20 years old and um, no real experience on a proper film set at all. And um, was really lucky enough to have a third year lecturer for the last few months of our third year because we had a bit of a mixed up year with lecturers. Um, and we had the really wonderful director, Ray Argel, who made some sort of wonderful features like Eight Ball and Return Home in the sort of early 90s, I think, late 80s, early 90s. And his cinematographer was um, Mandy Walker, who has since gone on to shoot amazing films like The Mountain Between Us and Shattered Glass and Lantana and Baz Luhrmann's Australia. And she's about to shoot um, Baz Luhrmann's next feature as well and at the time she was still living in Melbourne and the VCA used to run a mentor scheme when you when you left the school so each of the schools the the film school the dance school the art school would choose one student to be part of this mentor scheme and I got chosen maybe because I was so little (laughs) and um and they said who do you want to work with for 12 months and we'll sort it out we'll set it up as a professional mentorship and I said I want to work with Mandy Walker and so they said, fine, that's fine. And um, and that all sort of went ahead and I got to go out on set with her. I got to go to grades with her. And um, and she gave me such wonderful advice that sort of sent me sort of off into the world. But but another thing was I, I actually got to go out on set and be a clapper loader on uh, commercials and a, and a short um, a short film that she was doing at the time. So by the end of that year, I had met the most wonderful um, camera assistants and uh, camera department professionals, and I'd sort of come recommended from her, and then got a really great attachment on an American um, telly movie. Attachment in what role? In the camera department. To, well, actually, not just to the camera department. It was to the DP at the time. It was sort of through this film Victoria scheme. I was attached to cinematographer Mike Malloy, who was Kubrick's operator on Clockwork Orange and Barry Lyndon. And uh, so I spent three months on a massive, what for me was like a massive American show. We're shooting on Panavision. It was 
multiple units and um, I spent my time with that camera department and with him and that was really fantastic as well. And so having these sort of bedrock of Mandy and Mike Malloy and these uh, on-set experiences, I sort of decided to go into camera department uh, from there. It was, it was also <laughs> Mandy had said something to me that was that's always stuck with me and at the time was the perfect thing for me. Um, she said, when you're a cinematographer, you never get to work with other cinematographers. So if there's a way of being on set and being in camera department, um, you get to and work with the best that you can, then like that's such a good foundation to kind of see how the people do it. And for me, just not having the confidence of being on any kind of set when I left film school to um, feeling like a confident person in my role. I worked as a second AC and then for a short time as a first AC, but trying to work on feature films primarily as that was my sort of end goal as a DP um, and see how some really amazing DPs do it. And I got to work with Andrew Lesney and Oliver Stapleton and David Egby and Ian Baker, uh, some really wonderful DPs who have such a breadth of experience and knowledge. And they all do do their job a little bit differently. The way they do the politics, the way they do on set, how they sort of get a shot happening, how they light, how they um, talk to their crew, all of those sort of things were good and informative for me. And I actually loved being a second AC. I thought that was such a brilliant job. <laughs> and you're right in the thick of it. Yeah, a lot of pressure. A lot of pressure, but it was kind of a good pressure, I think. <laughs> and were all of these people in that world, were they encouraging? Were they generous with that information? I would say yes, definitely. I think, um, yeah, Andrew, um, Andrew Lesney was another great mentor for me when I had sort of stopped assisting as much. Um, he invited me to come out onto King Kong when he was shooting that. And while I was over in New Zealand um, hanging out with him on set and him talking about why he was using a particular light and what stop he was getting and what he was trying to get out of this um, lighter, lighting setup. Um, of an evening, he was like, show me one of your short films. So he watched like five of my short films that I'd shot to this point and um, we'd sort of discuss thoughts and feelings about why I did certain things and what I might have done differently. So, I mean, yeah, so generous and so fantastic. Oh my gosh, that is incredible. That is so wonderful. Yeah. What would you say is, was your first, you know, big uh, job that you went, oh my gosh, I'm doing this. This is, I'm, I'm the DP. I'm the, you know, was there a moment there or did it kind of just blur and amongst everything else? Um, definitely one sort of salient project felt like it had sort of stepped me into a different arena was, um, I, I mean, since leaving film school, I'd been shooting short films, even between films that I was working on as a second AC. So I had quite a good, um, I had quite a good portfolio of short films by the time I'd finished assisting anyway. But um, right at the end of my assisting career, when I'd had a little bit of, um, I'd had a jump into focus pulling for a few years, which I wasn't 100% great at, <laughs> I think. Um, but this is all in film, mind you. This is all, all still 35 mil, 16 mil pre-digital world. Um, my good friend and another collaborator, Ben Chessel, um, who he got a SBS short feature um, funded. It was like a 50-minute feature that would be um, aired on SBS television. And so we had a small but not 
not too small, <laughs> amount of money to shoot for. It was three weeks, which sounds oh my gosh crazy now, actually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> three weeks for 50 minutes. So that was my sort of first professional kind of long form thing. And I had to make the decision to give up assisting at that point because I couldn't, I couldn't in good conscience kind of go back to that world after stepping into cinematography. I think you need to make a break at some point. And that was a clear kind of moment for me to do that. And then that sort of just the fear of the unknown, I suppose, and kind of putting pressure on yourself to be this thing that you've always told everyone you wanted to be. And um, that was definitely that time. I was going to ask that question about, you know, when, when you make that decision to step from, you know, another role in the camera department and become a cinematographer, but, but yeah, like it sounds like it was kind of uh, made for you almost. Yeah. I mean, I was very lucky in that way that I sort of stepped into that from a successful career as a camera assistant into this position of um, shooting your first short feature that um, is funded, that you're getting paid, your crew's getting paid. I mean, this is a whole other world for me at that point. So also there was this other sort of idea that if I'm going to go out and represent myself as a cinematographer, you can't turn around the next week and come out as a first AC. People just don't, that doesn't sit for people. It's just like, are you making the choice or you're not making the choice? And I had to really draw a line in the sand and say, this is it. I've got the most simple simplistic question which is also an awful question what makes a good dp um i think it's it's about listening (laughs) and communicating well with your with everybody like it's a good it's got to be a good communicator um with so many different people but i think being a good listener is key because you've got to understand what the story is about and you've got to understand what your director wants and be clear enough to listen and understand. Mm. I think the listening is a, is a big thing. It's interesting because uh, it's a similar answer for the role of a colorist. You know, I, I, I know plenty of colorists who are, who run absolute circles around me from a, technical perspective and all the rest of it but it's not just that one skill set you need to be a sure you need to be a good colorist or you need to be a good dp but then there's you mentioned earlier on the politics the communication the you know to be able to adjust as the job changes and all of those facets they come together don't they they do yeah there was something i was going to say about that you know you make this step out of this seemingly financially secure world of assisting into very luckily for me was a was a paid job when I first got out but at the end of that paid job there's you're not assisting anymore you're not getting any money out of that so to pay your rent like I'm a DP but I have no work so I I went and got a job in my friend's cafe because I needed to pay my rent but it was also one of those disposable jobs that I could leave at a point so for a good nine months I was toing and froing between little piecemeal DP work and just building that up slowly and solidly um, and working behind the scenes at a cafe. And um, I didn't have the luxury of an, of an alternative. I didn't have, yeah, any other any other way to do that. So um, 
I think it's probably worth mentioning because I, th- I think for people who are trying to make that jump, like I don't think it's I don't think it's a bad thing to have to push your energies into maybe some little side hustle so you can actually get through a few months. Do you remember? Was there any period that someone said, "Oh, can you can you assist on this?" and you had to go, "No." Did that happen? Oh, <laughs> uh, I think there was one film early on. It was like a big project, and that could have been great. Like you know, it's one of those things that you're like, that would have been great to do but I really am committed to drawing a line in the sand and that's really scary because you you can see how much money you might make and kind of I, I don't know and also that you really I really did enjoy being an assistant when I was as well I really did like working with DPs so um that's sort of another thing that I really missed about it was that you just don't see those DPs anymore you don't get to work with them and I suppose off the back of what you said earlier once you've made that jump and just like Mandy had said to you you don't get to be with DPs anymore because you're on your own then yeah but because I like DPs so much I usually call them all the time (laughs) 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 and um it's such a great community Community of DPs internationally and I went to Camera Maj in Poland last year and met so many more new friends. It does really feel like if you need advice or you need, yeah, if you need advice or just to talk something through with someone who really understands what you're going through, I do feel like I could call just about anybody. I, I spoke to um, David Muir, yeah, the, the amazing David Muir, and and I've been editing together the podcast for him because it's you know I want to. He's very important in my life. He's he was such a mentor to me, and so I want to get it right. And I've been chipping away at it, but he said in in that podcast, which is going to be all back to front because this is going to come out after your podcast. But he said that he said, look, in his experience, DPs are so generous. And so, and, and they're not kind of like, no, I'm not going to tell you. How it, they're, they're, they're the opposite. They're like, yeah, yeah, I did it like this. And, you know, and they're kind of happy to share that knowledge, which, which I think is wonderful. Oh, so good. Yeah. I mean, there's no sort of protecting your own sort of version of things because you're on set with 50 other people and a gaffer and a grip and a camera assistant, like everybody knows all those tricks that you've just done and it's not your trick anyway it's their trick as well and so it's sort of nothing to be protective about it is a very sort of community I don't know it's a it's very open way of working I think and you just have to give it over and someone's always going to do something different with a piece of advice or a technique anyway like you're never going to have exactly the same situation. What you just said then sparked something in my head and that is that thing about as a DP yeah, you're you're you you've got that. I don't know what the analogy is—the wheel to the ship in that regard. But you depend on so many others as well. I mean, that's the the joy of it is you're you're working together to make this vision. You know, do you find that you you try to surround yourself with uh, you know people that you're used to working with, or, or are you happy to kind of just go the way that, that you know that it takes you? I think I do have certain loyalties if I work in um, certain areas like I do like to work with the same people if I've had an enjoyable experience with them I've also been put into the position where you go somewhere foreign um, somewhere you're not used to or you don't know anybody there and having to kind of find your own people within that space and I think I've become quite good at um, deciding what kind of personalities I work well with so um, yeah I've been very lucky to work with such great crews and I hope to kind of go back to those people when I go back to those places if you know what I mean and like I've done a couple of quite a few jobs in 
Western Australia now, which for people who don't know, Western Western Australia is a long way from anywhere, even in Australia. <laughs> it's a big um, country. Yeah, it's a big country. Yeah, it's like the other side of other side of the country from Melbourne. So to to work on a job over there, it's you work with locals over there, and um, there are such terrific crews in Perth, and um, to have the opportunity to meet them and work with them is so great. You know, to be a curious and sort of social person, it's kind of nice to meet new people and find out, you find out different things about yourself and how you work when you try something different as well. So that's kind of good. Yeah. So my perception, and I think it's a fairly good perception, is that in the uh, in the film industry, but in so many industries, it's definitely very male-dominated and the camera department is so male-dominated. Is that still the case or is it is it not so much? Um, I think things are changing, but I think it's still got a long way to go. I mean, my personally, from my sort of upbringing in the camera department, I sort of, I never really um, had too much of a very male dominated experience. I worked with a lot of female focus pullers when I was a second AC. Obviously, Mandy was like a really big influence on my career early on. And so I sort of saw this kind of feminine camera department from when I left film school more than 20 years ago to all the way through. So I'll hire some female focus pullers. I haven't really thought about it in that way, but obviously um, occasionally, even as a second AC, I might work on a film set where I was the only woman and it definitely feels like a different dynamic in that way. And I think having sort of a mixed diverse gender diverse and otherwise camera department can be um, a really great sort of leveler for everybody. And I don't really know it any other way myself, no, sure. yeah. but um, I think there's definitely the percentages are pretty low still. And yeah, I think it, it merits some kind of active intervention in changing things. Do you think as, you know, if, if for men in the industry, is there something that they should be stepping up to? And, and is there something that they, you know, as, as guys could do to add to that, to, to make that change? Absolutely. I mean, I think there's been cinematographers that I've worked with as an assist. I mean, thinking about like someone like Roger Lancer, he's always hired very sort of gender diverse um, camera departments uh, across his whole career. When I first worked with him, it was, I was the second AC to Trish Keating as a focus puller. And yeah, that was, that was 20 years ago. So uh, yeah, there's, there's people who have always been pushing that barrow, but I think um, more people can get on board the idea of maybe trying to find some kind of equality within camera department and maybe sort of seeing if we can kind of push something into lighting and grips as well. If somebody, if you're going to, if you're going to hire, like, you know, on a bigger job, sometimes you'll have quite a lot of extra assistance. I mean, maybe that new person who comes in, we could pick from a pool that's not just men. I mean, maybe I would imagine there would be women out there who would really relish that job. I mean, it's, they're really cool jobs. They're really awesome. So why not? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was thinking, I, um, and I'm going to read this because I wrote this down, although it's now that I'm reading it, it looks a bit clumsy, but nonetheless, the, 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 the effort was there. Um, <laughs> um, so I've written this fabric of Australian film and television by so many people that I know and so many other whose names are very familiar to me and inspire me. And for you, Katie Milrod, I, I feel that you're one of these threads who crosses through that fabric, you know, of all these people. Like you've you've worked with such a range of people on such a range of projects, and you're now part of that 
Australian film industry. Is there? Do you do you feel like that's something that you're conscious of? Oh, um, yeah. I, I suppose um, I, I feel like people might start to know who I am. Maybe like if they might have <laughs> seen some things, they're like, oh, that that's that Katie girl again. But um, <laughs> yeah, I sort of don't feel like I'm particularly super familiar <laughs> just yet. I think there's, um, but yeah, I mean, there's certainly some people that I really admire and think of as amazing filmmakers and I've got to work with them. And so like for me, it's just another step forward to kind of working on projects that I love more often than not. <laughs> I know it's, it's a clumsy kind of question, but it's something I went, I wonder if, you know, when you're in the midst of, you know, cause you're, you're not only rubbing shoulders with some very impressive people and, and incredibly creative people, but they're rubbing shoulders with you as well. Like you, you're making these amazing things and, and <laughs> it's an interesting thing, whether or not you're ever conscious of that, or if you're kind of more focused on your craft and you kind of go, Oh, well, here I am. I, I think there's definitely a degree of like, Oh, how did I get here? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there's a new project. There's a project that, you know, there's a script and they went, yeah, we want you to come on board. And here's a heck of a question. Where do you start? Where do you start when, when, you know, you're given a script, where do you start? Yeah. I, I used, to, I used to pick up a script and like have a pencil in my hand and write stuff down as I first read it because I thought, oh, that sort of first sort of germ of an idea is really, really important. Um, but I've stopped doing that now because I want to just read a script and enjoy it for what it is, whatever comes and not be not put too much pressure on myself to kind of come up with sort of something cinematic or some kind of um, interesting kind of visual idea straight away. I mean, they, they sort of come to you anyway and sort of float in, float out, but I don't try and hold on to them in the same way. So I, I suppose I just want to read the script and kind of feel my connection to it and what it means to me personally. And um, I think you want to have that connection with something if you're going to work on it for months and months and months. Mm. <laughs> how do you know? How do you, when you read something, how do you go, Oh yeah. Yeah. This is the one I want to be involved in this. Is there, is this something tangible? Um, I think if I, if I manage to read it kind of quickly <laughs> means I've engaged, oh, like a, if I've engaged with it, I tend to read them really quickly. Um, and some I sort of get stuck on and come back to, but then sometimes, sometimes that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think sometimes that can just be, sometimes it can be just the mood you're in, I suppose. But um, I, I usually get to the end of it and I might say to my partner, that is a good one. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. So I, I think immediately there's something in there or maybe there's a scene that's really like captured your imagination somehow. Something that pulls you in. Yeah. And then I think following on from that is that you um, get to speak to the director and see sort of whether you're on the same page about it. And I think that can be quite a revealing moment. And for the most part, I've had really sort of positive connections there, but occasionally um, that connection doesn't happen after reading it. And you're like, Oh, this is something completely not what, I thought, and either that's a good thing or that's not a good thing. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think the ones where it's sort of going a way that doesn't feel true to you, I think it can be a good way to let go of something as well. It's inevitable or it's it's just a cold hard fact that sometimes you work on something that you're not 100% into. How do you maintain that, I'm going to say professionalism, but but I, but I guess how do you maintain the kind of, you know what, I'm going to do the best I can anyway, even though it's not my cup of tea. Luckily enough with the long longer jobs that I've done, um, 
I've not really had that problem. I have found sort of something to really connect story-wise to and really um, hold on to. But I suppose there's a reason that you're doing the project and it might be for that relationship with the director um, or the producer or those kind of things. So I think you have to come at each day and each problem with sort of as much enthusiasm as you can because there's always something to kind of learn and get excited about, even if – potentially you don't like the way a particular performance is happening that's not exactly how you imagined it was going to be and now it's something completely different you're not quite sure if that's going to sit in the world that everybody's trying to create or something like that so I suppose there's always an embellishment that you can be kind of bringing to your own work that could be the way you're using your lenses the way that you're lighting it the way that you're moving your camera that can maybe lift the story to another level that might help yeah. So I think maybe using it always as a as a learning moment or trying to squeeze something else out of it. When you're going into it, you know, there's a scene or something like that and you go, you know what? I want to try this thing. Does ever the thing overpower, let's just shoot the scene? And I guess what I'm trying to say is I've, I've seen a couple of, not a couple, quite a lot of films that go, yeah, I'm really conscious that they're trying this thing yep. in this scene, whereas really it doesn't fit. Yeah, I think there's always a danger of that when you come up with something that's quite high concept that you can get very excited about. Like maybe it's a camera move that's all like done in a kind of a one shot kind of thing that sort of comes in through the door and sweeps around and does this thing. Everyone gets caught up in the whole construction of it and the performance may uh, become secondary to that perhaps. And I think that the performance has to be, I don't know, like it has to be at the core of it, doesn't it? Because that's what's sort of driving the story. And yeah, you can get caught up in those sort of special technical things sometimes. How the heck do you keep your toes on the ground to go, you know what, guys, we're we're going away for, you know, how do you stay true? How can you be conscious of that at the time? Well, I mean, I think you have to, yeah, run hand in hand at a problem like that with your director and you both have to be aware of sort of what's going on. I mean, in some ways, sometimes as the DP, you have to just keep your mind on the technical um, if it is something really difficult and trust that the director's got their hand on that part of that part of storytelling and that hopefully if um, if it is getting away, they'll turn around and say, you know what, I'm not seeing enough of what I need to see and I'm seeing too much of all the other. So, yes, I think some days as the DP on those sort of technical problem-solving shots, yeah, potentially I would be relying on the director there to reel it in. The job of the DP, you know, it's this thing and it's something that attracted to me to that role originally it's such an incredible balance between technology and artistry um i read someone tweeted the other day which blew my brains out that douglas slocum shot raiders of lost ark without a light meter he shot the whole film without a light meter and i'm just going what the yeah you know how much is there that how much do you go into the instinct of being an artist to leaning on the technology of yeah well we've still got to get the exposure right we've still got to get the composition you know where where is that balanced lie for you? Um, yeah, look, I think the technical, and particularly since sort of digital, such a way that we work these days, you can often see quite quickly what things are actually going to look like on set. So if you've got a really great monitor and your setup is as close to what you want as possible, I think you can be a little bit more organic with the way you sort of work with the technical. So I, I mean, I always have like a histogram or sort of false color or something at hand that I can kind of just 
check in with my sort of technicals, make sure nothing's kind of too under or too over. But it is just about sort of looking at that looking at that frame and sort of seeing if you can caress it in different ways and it is sort of a bit more like sculptural and uh less about the sort of technicalities of the camera in a lot of ways and you kind of rely on your assistants to kind of deal with a lot of actual technicals of the equipment i I did promise that we would touch on the film versus digital thing and this seems like a good segue you know you come from a a background of shooting film Uh, how much does that now inform what you do in a digital world and do you have a preference um I think shooting film is really thrilling because you're in charge of the image in a way that nobody else knows until they see it the next day. (laughs) Um, And so there's sort of a, yeah, a magical kind of thing about film that's kind of beautiful and kind of gives you as a DP a control that you don't get on a digital set. Um, But I mean, I think digital is so incredible and sort of what you can do in low light and um, how you can sort of get up and running quite quickly and um, you can just keep rolling. Like, I think there's so many advantages to that. I think it would have to be like a very specific project that I would be demanding to shoot on film. Although it does look really beautiful. We started shooting Gurmal actually on 35 mil. We, um, Paul Williams, the director had um, pitched to the producers that because he, because he's come from an editing background, he knew exactly what he wanted and he wouldn't be overshooting anything and if we shot on a two perf uh if we shot two perf we'd get doubly amount of 35 and um out of a 35 mil thousand foot roll but then i i think there was just so much to do in the end that the numbers didn't quite add up but we did start for a couple of months shooting on 35 and um and that looked so beautiful like it was so nice to sort of get your hands dirty again and quite literally when we shot some of the stuff in sort of hard to reach places there was no one else to load the film but me so (laughs) i would be in the change bag myself loading my own mags which was fun actually yeah yeah no it it would be remiss of me not to talk about color given that this is the color count yes when you're thinking about colour, how, how do you work with an art director, the director and the colourist? Who's involved with that conversation? Um, well, colour's obviously affected by a bunch of things, like what kind of lights you're going to use, what sort of wardrobe's going to be in play, what the locations give you, how you're going to work with the colourist at the sort of back end or maybe in light creation in the in the first instance and all of those are factors in sort of what's going to get seen I mean if you create a particular light it might mean that all of your reds become orange or all your blues become slightly you know washed out and things like that so as far as production design and wardrobe are concerned what they're expecting to kind of get out of a particular set or costume um, will be entirely affected by decisions that you make as a cinematographer so I think having those conversations early on and as early on as possible um, is very helpful to everybody and I mean, sometimes pre-production happens in such a rush that there's not a lot of time to kind of make the the perfect choice straight away. Um, and I think sometimes that starts to come out once you see rushes and maybe a wardrobe wardrobe like, oh, that looks a lot more, you know, purple than I thought it would be. And maybe when we do this wardrobe, maybe we'll change it to there. So I, I think I... I I become depending on the production of course um locations can have a big effect on how a color might 
be seen or experienced. So sometimes going from location stills and going through them with the art director and production designer to yeah, sort of to work out what might be sort of complementary to the journey we're going on. I think that can be really helpful. And references with production design as well. That's another that's another big thing. Some some production designers will like to have other sort of film references or photographic references. Some will just have like colour swatches and fabrics and Joe Ford. Uh, she liked <laughs> we did it we did a job where we were um, crossing the Nullarbor across the sort of central south desert flat area in Australia and on our location reccees we were um, sort of moving across that landscape to a certain degree and she would take a snap lock bag and fill it up with a handful of dirt and so once we'd collected all our locations when she got back to the production office she would have a wall of dirt colors oh my gosh <laughs> um and they look quite different like what you would think oh no well, that's very similar to that it's just like no there's like this whole palette of like earth colors that you get from crossing this landscape that makes me so happy i know it's so exciting that's so wonderful <laughs> and yeah i suppose it's i suppose it's finding color inspiration in 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 lots of different ways and i mean that was just a revelation to me actually um seeing that it reminded me of an exhibition i'd seen at um the venice biennale where someone had sort of painted kind of sections of of earth on little pasteboards and they were like there was hundreds and hundreds within this room but the spectrum of color within that just of this kind of earth colors was it was amazing that's a nice link into what i was going to ask you next which is what gets your heart beating what's your inspiration what do you what do you see well i suppose there's i suppose i I think location location surveys and sort of being within the world of the story early on and depending on how constructed that needs to be by production design of course can be quite any inspiration to sort of what you might create. I, I did a um, film called Looking for Grace with Sue Brooks a few years ago that got into competition at Venice Film Festival. And we um, had a short pre-production period of about four weeks and we had to travel quite a long way in Western Australia to have a look at sort of this sort of wheat belt area. And um, there was motel rooms and on the road and things like that. And it was a landscape I was really unfamiliar with. Um, and certainly, you know, you've seen a million films uh, in kind of cool old American ho- motels. And so I suppose I sort of had that at the back of my mind, you know, if you're going to be in a motel, that's what a motel looks like. But then actually getting out to these sort of really dull Australian motels <laughs> that were um, not sort of that cool kind of um, shabby chic. <laughs> they were just really shabby. Um, <laughs> but there was something... There was something um, in them that was unique to the way they were, um, these horrible sort of brick walls and, and air conditioners and um, I think sort of finding finding uh, an honesty in that environment and not trying to recreate or be um, derivative of something else <laughs> that I'd seen before but like maybe expressing that landscape in a little bit more truthfully we walked into one of these motels that we didn't shoot in in the end on an afternoon scout and it had these yellow curtains on the on the windows and for whatever reason we came into this room and we didn't open the curtains and it just had this sort of glowing 
yellow kind of light with just a little slit of sunlight coming through. And um, we're all sort of taking photos and looking around. And um, I just looked back towards the curtains and there was this beautiful um, sort of silhouette of the production designer. And this color was just magical and um, really amazing. I started to sort of take some photos. And when we got to the scene that was going to be we were going to shoot um, the scene that we were going to do in that particular one that we were looking at. I then recreated this sort of yellow curtain light that had sort of come from this environment on this other location because I was so enamored with sort of how that looked and sort of what mood that created. So I think it's just sort of being open to, for me, it's being open to how you experience the story and what kind of truths you can find, I suppose, as you go. Mm, that's so lovely to be, you know, it's coming back for me to that thing about, you know, we're talking about the piano and you get the, this glimpse and it just, it, it, it just slots into this place in your heart or your mind or whatever. And you go, I'm going to keep that little one. And it's, it's like, yeah, it's, it's really lovely. I, I was wanting to ask because, you know, to be conscious of the fact that we're in this incredible place in our lives at the moment with this pandemic and um, that we're all separated. How, I mean, how is that affecting you as a DP? And then I guess the broader question, how is that affecting uh, the industry where you guys are? Well, yeah, it's sort of hard to gauge right now sort of what the um, fallout from all of this is really going to be. And I, I think there's a positive kind of feeling right now um, in Australia that, oh, there might be a way out of this, but no one really knows sort of how we come out of this. Obviously, working with a 1.5 metre social distancing rule on a set is impractical and kind of not possible for performance. So I think, yeah, sort of navigating that and sort of seeing how long we can do that or different ways of doing that, I think, um, is an interesting dilemma. As far as work goes, it feels like borders are a little bit more closed off than they were before. Um, I certainly had the possibility of some international work that has now gone away. So I think because it's too high risk, I think, to just start bringing people in from elsewhere. So um, feels like a bit more work in your hometown and country, maybe. Um, and Australia being sort of so isolated in a way, if we can get a handle on this, maybe we're up and shooting things um, a lot earlier than other places in the world. I don't know. For, for drama, I think it's it's going to be really difficult for quite a while because no one can get insured and until they can, no one really wants to take the risk on a on a sort of largish scale production, I think, on form. But maybe the smaller things, maybe it just means smaller projects, smaller kind of more contained projects might actually get a run. Is there a genre or a project, like a wish list, you go, you know what, I really, really want to do a Mills and Boone, Hallmark, da, da, da. Is, is there something that you go, you know what, this is the thing I haven't done that I would really like to do. Is there anything like that on your wish list? That I haven't done that I'd really like to do. Yeah. Oh, look, I, I mean, I think I haven't really thought about it in that way, but now I'm like, oh, maybe doing an action film would be really fun. That, that would be really fun. <laughs> <laughs> Katie Mirwright, thank you so much for sitting on the color couch, um, be it virtually. It's been a, incredible pleasure to talk to you um yeah it's really really nice to speak to you and and to hear about your thoughts and and how you got to where you are it's been lovely vincent taylor a delight and a treat to speak with you and see you and um thank you so much for having me my pleasure 
would like to thank uh, my producer, Amelia Chapelo, um, who I think is now my editor as well because I've kind of given up. Um, I would like to thank uh, Chubby Tycoon for the music. He's always hilarious and is... Yeah, certainly my best buddy. And thanks again to Katie Millwright. Please join me for the next Color Couch, which I'm pretty sure is going to be a, another um, work from home edition. Please, everyone be safe and take care.